Hello and welcome to Ideas Matter. In this episode, we feature the fourth full-length lecture in our series, The Elite, Old and New. The talk is entitled Brideshead Revisited, World Wars and the End of the Old Elite. Published in the weeks after VE Day in 1945, just as British voters swept a Labour government into power, Evelyn Waugh's Brideshead Revisited was a surprise bestseller in both the UK and America and captured the imagination of generations of readers. The story follows the life of Captain Charles Ryder and his fateful obsession with the aristocratic flight family as they slowly fall from grace and fortune during the interwar years. So how does war make sense of the decline of the British establishment? Is the destruction of the old order, as one character has it, all on account of the war? What drove war's attacks on modernism? And what can the decline of the old elite tell us about the elite of today? The lecturer is Helen Serrells, Chief Operating Officer at Feature Story News and the founder of the Washington Hyenas Book Club. There's a lot you can say about Brideshead Revisited. It's a very beautifully written book. It has a wonderful kind of historical sweep uh, in, in, in its content, spanning a critical period between the First and the Second World Wars. It's taken to be a war's finest novel. Um, the New York Times, when it came out in 1945, heralded it as a fabulous novel. It was the, uh, I think it was the book of the year in 1945 when it came out. Um, and it's always on the kind of great uh, literature of, of, of all time lists. It's funny. It's kind of satirical. It's got rich characters in it. It's, it's kind of moving. Uh, it's about love and loss, class and conflict, war and peace, religion and atheism. And as it obviously is subtitled, the profane and the sacred. Um, it's become quite a cultural reference uh, and part of our kind of collective imagination in terms of understanding British history. And I think that's quite an important thing about the book. It's often imitated the 1981 TV series um, with Jeremy Irons and uh, other people who I can't remember was in it, uh, was a huge sensation um, uh, in, in, in both America and in the UK. Another movie was made in 2008 and there's loads of spin-offs. Everybody says Downton Abbey is really inspired by Brideshead. And there's more to come in 2022. Kate Blanchett is uh, doing another movie on, on Brideshead. Um, it's also much hated by many people. Uh, Evelyn uh, is war is seen as snobbish, conservative and a traditionalist. So it's a book that has come to mean a lot to many people. But I think in today's session, we want to focus on what we can learn about the elites and elite power from Brideshead Revisited. And if, if you like, it's kind of, this is where it all starts. Um, we should have the caveat, it's not a history book, it's a novel. And it's shaped by war's own kind of sensibilities and uh, preoccupations. I think that's most evident in the central theme of uh, Catholicism, divine grace and redemption. Uh, war himself was a, a, a enthusiastic uh, convert to Catholicism. And I think you can see that as an important theme in this book. But it's also obvious in some of the less obvious themes. Um, It was written during the Second World War and in War himself, when he looked back at the book, said that the book was too much a product of spam, Nissan huts and blackouts. 
there was too much food in it because he was uh, in, in a kind of condition of rationing when he wrote it, all the plover's eggs. And in fact, when he uh, published the second edition, he took out some of the food because it just seemed completely uh, over the top. But despite that, I think there's a lot we can take on specific questions of the elite. I presume most people, hopefully most people have read the book. It's a novel, uh, it's a story that's told through memory. Uh, I think that's a very important feature of the book. It's a nostalgic backward look at a critical period of loss and decline in British history. Um, the novel follows the dissolution of an old aristocratic Catholic family. Um, they're not even a typical aristocratic family. I mean, in that they're Catholic, they're seen as, you know, already very isolated and uh, their, their kind of aristocratic qualities are not necessarily representative of the ruling class at the time. It's also written well before the Cold War. So some of the things we talked about this morning really aren't factors here. But I think it does capture a moment and a mood of a loss of tradition and the early attempts at renewal and reconstruction for a kind of new kind of society. One of the strengths of the books is it kind of follows War's own life trajectory. He himself was obviously at Oxford. He had a failed marriage. He went through this kind of religious renewal. He sort of falls into faith. He wrote the book in three months, which is kind of uh, shocking uh, when you kind of think about it. And I think that he is talking about something which he himself experienced, which I think is a particular strength in the book. I want to look at three ideas for our discussion, uh, which I think are quite interesting and helpful. I want to look at the whole idea of the loss of innocence and what that tells us about the nature of uh, the decline of the establishment. I want to look at the specific idea of decline and dissolution. And then I want to look at what is what War himself calls the rise of the modern man or the shallowness of modernity. Um, so those are three things I think we can kind of dwell on as ideas or themes, which I think can tell us quite a bit about things. So first on the loss of innocence, I think the uh, loss of innocence and the sort of sense of nostalgia in this book is absolutely overwhelming. It's what everybody remembers about Brideshead. And it's, you know, it's, it's most striking, even sort of in the opening moments of the book, that Captain Ryder is at Brideshead, having been in the present, having been posted there, billeted there in the Second World War. And he realises that he's been there before. And the contrast between the kind of place that it is now and the place that he remembers is very, very stark. He, he looks back and sees it as a place of wonder and awe when he first saw it. And I think that is incredibly evocative, that you immediately kind of are, are thrown back into a kind of, uh, you're plunged into a past golden age, which is not where the writer is, and it's all done through memory. So it's an older man looking back at this past golden age. The first part of the book, excuse my Latin accent, is um, et in Arcadio, Arcadia ego, ego rather, which is kind of, you know, here we are in, in a kind of perfect world. And as I say, this is the bit that everybody remembers. We're in Oxford, 1923. And uh, Charles said, Oxford in those days was a city of aquatint. In her spacious and quiet streets, men walked and spoke as they had done in Newman's day. Her autumnal mists, her grey springtime, the rare glory of her summer days, 
such as that day when the chestnut was in flower and the bells rang out high and, the, and clear over the gables and cupolas, exhaled the soft airs of centuries of youth. So that idea of kind of the youth of Oxford, the centuries of youth, I think is very uh, important. And it kind of, it really kind of relates to this idea of an age of innocence. Charles himself talks about his child going through at Oxford, he has a childhood that he never had. When we meet Sebastian, he's a character who's in love with his childhood. He refuses to grow up and he carries his teddy bear, Aloysius, all everywhere. But even in this moment of recollection, I think it rapidly becomes clear that even in Oxford 1923, there's already a sense of loss, of something having passed. And the actual loss of innocence, what he calls the loss of innocence, predates the start of the book, if you like. In the opening sequence, there's a sort of very chaotic scene where a load of women, it's eights week, and a load of women are coming into Oxford. And the, uh, what do they call him, Oxford scout, his scout is you know, very scathing of the fact that they have to change everything because all these women are coming in and they're not meant to come in until the end. And he's got to put pin cushions in the toilets and everything. And Lunt, the, the scout says, it's all on account of the war. It couldn't have happened but for that. And you can see that already there's a kind of sense that things have already changed. Things have already become. And the narrator, Charles, says, for this was 1923 and for Lunt and for thousands of others, things could never be the same as they had been in 1914. So I think when, when you read the book, you realise as you go on that actually the key moment of the kind of point of decline or loss or whatever is off stage. It's 1914. It's, it's, a, it's a first First World War. And it's a kind of watershed moment, I think. And as you go through the book, you see this again and again. So, you know, Charles's own loneliness and sense of kind of almost being an orphan is that his mother has died in Serbia during the war. You know, Lady Marchmain's brothers have died in the war and everything that kind of begins to unravel really, it, it points back to that period, the collapse of the flight's marriage, Lord Marchmain going to Venice, the loss of purpose of the Marchmain children is already beginning to unravel. And there is a constant kind of reference back to the war as a, as a sort of a lost moment um, in Venice, Sebastian and uh, uh, Charles talk about how it's rather sad, sad to think that whatever happens, you and I can never possibly get involved in a war. There's this sort of harking back that things have changed. And I think in that sense, the ode to youth, which is all in that luxurious uh, Oxford life, which was so well done on the TV series, is really an ode to the young men of Flanders. I think that's what war, that's what Evelyn War is really addressing. And he's really saying that we have lost a generation of, of young men and there can be no return to, to before then. Um, and it's changed everything. It's a point of no re return. And even though it's not described in any terms of, as a really a national catastrophe, you can see that from that moment, every institution that is kind of a, a captured in the book goes into the decline. We have Brideshead, the place, the decline of the country house, the decline of the family, the decline of the aristocracy, the lack of grip of the Catholic Church, the in, even the sort of decline of academia. And then later in the book, when Charles is describing the army, you see that the army is just 
is completely falling apart. So I think that's the first idea that the sort of moment of kind of ruling class decline is really the First World War. And I think that kind of predates everything that we've talked about. I think it's a very strong theme in the book. The second idea in the book is how the nature of that decline is uh, described. And I think that very clearly you understand that what is happening is not a, a decline of you know, a, a loss of wealth or economic decline. It is very much a sort of a, a moral decline rather than a material decline. And you can see that uh, in terms of, you know, lots of the storylines, I'm sure we can look at them. But you first of all, you sort of see that there's this sort of sense of a mood of a loss of purpose for the establishment and for the March Main family. Brideshead as a you know place, uh, Brideshead Castle is as a place is already hollowed out. Nobody's there. It's kind of, uh, everybody is just, you know, ignoring the place. Lord Marchbane is divorced. He's in Venice. We don't really know what he's doing. He's not really doing anything with any great purpose. He talks about how they previously were builders and they transferred the house and that, you know, they were all about builders. But when you look at what the family is doing now, you see that they just become rather purposeless. I think one of the funniest bits in the books is when uh, Brideshead, who's the older son, uh, you realise that his life has become about collecting matchboxes. That's what he does, is he collects little matchboxes. And in fact, you suspect that he marries Beryl um, because of her husband, her old husband's um, ex-matchbox collection, which is kind of you know, very sad and, 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 you know, he's just become nothing. He's nothing like his father. And the daughter, Julia, who was debutante of the year, you know, just becomes sad and lonely, really. So I think there's that sort of loss of purpose that's very, very strong in the book and I think characterises how the ruling class felt in the wake of the First World War. I think perhaps even more importantly is there's a loss of authority. And I think the loss of authority that is explained in the book is absolutely palpable. I mean, obviously, you have parents who are completely out of control of their, you know, their children are completely out of, out of reach from the parents. And they seem to have you know, no ability to control them. On the one hand, you have Charles's father, who is this utterly remote figure, and his whole family has just dissolved, and he has no authority uh, whatsoever. And, and, and you can see the same thing with Lord and Lady Marchmain, no influence. And, you know, when, when something goes wrong with their children, they're really not able to exert any real influence at all on them. I think it's interesting when Sebastian goes uh, to Morocco and sort of, you know, he's basically dying and really nobody in the family can bring him back. And the parents themselves are in no position to put any influence on him. And they try to enroll Charles to take him back. And earlier in the book, they have to send him out with a Oxford Don. But that sort of lack of authority, of parental authority, and the, and the, the loss of authority it's associated with that, I think is really interesting. And I think it's not just a family thing. You can also see that there's attempts to try to sort of capture that authority that is lost in the book. I think that the scene around uh, the 1926 general strike where some of them come back from France, uh, Boy, Mulcaster and um, uh, Charles, they come back and they think that they're that fighting the strikers. They're, they're coming in as strike breakers um, and they think this is going to be their moment. It's their generation's version of World War One. 
and you know they join the defense corps and they think they're going to be up for a fight and they sort of have this whole idea we weren't able to fight in the second in the first world war but you know we're going to show them now and then it's just completely pathetic um it just collapses i mean nothing happens and they it's just a debacle and so i think it all becomes rather pointless and pathetic so i think that sort of loss of authority loss of purpose is very strong in the book and for war i think he 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 has his characters all kind of just wandering around you know they're all just become wanderers and that's that sort of overwhelming sense um charles himself describes himself as homeless childless middle-aged and loveless and i think in that context you can understand uh, and we can discuss it war's own way of addressing this moral collapse is a kind of fall into faith uh, which is a very strong theme in the book that you know, for, for, for war, the only remaining moral authority is God. It's not even the church, it's just God. And so you have that final scene in the book where he's in the, in the chapel and there's the line where he says a prayer, an ancient, newly learned form of words. So he's finally kind of taken on a deference to religion. And I think that that falling into faith, it's not like it's a, it's a lovely thing, but it is the only kind of place where there seems to be any sort of moral authority, moral guidance, moral compass for Charles. The third uh, idea I think is also very interesting in the novel is the idea around the rise of modern, modern man and modernity. This is something which is, I think, very insightful of war and in fact, you know, is, is, is an important part of the book. And when you look at various adaptations of the book sometimes they miss this out the 2008 adaptation movie completely misses this out in that he has a whole sense of where the world is going and what is what is the um emer- who are the emerging classes and who are the new fledgling modern man and what what is it going to be war himself is unapologetically kind of conservative he's got nothing as a writer he's got nothing but content for the modern age he is is well known for um you know hating writers like Joyce and you know he if you ever do a uh, google search on any of the old videos of him you'll find him pontificating about Picasso and how awful he is and Joyce uh you know just stream of consciousness I mean it is a stream of consciousness but just seeing it as just waffle you know and really hates it the lack of structure the lack of kind of sensibility he really is not a modernist in any real sense but he does more than that in the book it's not that he just doesn't like the sort of modern world he also um begins to look at who are the emerging people that really can advance in this world so everything is in decline but there is the only thing that seems to be growing is this sort of emergence of the modern man and he calls it the he calls this new age the sort of age of hooper um hooper is the young officer at the beginning of the book who says rightio and is all rather he lacks culture and imagination and it's not that he's wicked he's just doesn't care and he's in he has he's insensitive and so you start the book with hooper and you actually end the book with hooper and he often talks about how we're creating a world for the Hoopers, you know, the Hoopers of this world. And he, when he describes Hooper, he says, Hooper was no romantic. Hooper wept often, but never for Henry's speech on St. Crispin's Day, nor for the epitaph that Thermophia, I can't say that word, 
The history they taught him had few battles in it, but instead a profusion of detail about human uh, legislation and recent industrial change. And he has this sort of image of Hooper as the sort of the person that has no real moral compass, has no passion, has no aesthetic, which is really important to War in the book. And he's the sort of unesthetic man, uh, is what he sees as the sort of modern man. I think that's one image that we get of where he thinks this is all going. The second image we get is with Rex Mottram, who's the guy who marries uh, Julia. Um, and he kind of personifies the hollow man. Um, he is a kind of modern capitalist. He's moneyed and, and he's, um, well, he's not American, he's Canadian, but effectively the sort of contempt that he's kind of treated with is he might as well be American. And he's described as a, a product of the modern disintegrated academy. In the words of Julia, his wife, he's not only ignorant, but also, and even worse, he's utterly ignorant of his ignorance. And then she says, this is Julia talking about him. He simply wasn't all there. He wasn't a complete human being at all. He was a tiny bit of one, unnaturally developed. I thought he was a sort of primitive, sav uh, primitive sav savage. He was something absolutely modern and up to date that only the ghast this ghastly age could produce. A tiny bit of man pretending he was whole. I mean, brilliant writing by War, and you know, utter in his sort of snobbery really comes through. But it, it is this sort of sense that. Uh, you know, that this is this man who is hopeless, but this is a person who, you know, in the end gets bridehead. He later becomes a cabinet minister. We hear about him at the very end, even though in the, in the mid-war period, he's kind of quite pro-Hitler. We hear that he's very uh, making speeches against Hitler. He is somebody who has advanced and he's very much a kind of, uh, you know, a figure of fun. I mean, the, the bit about where he's trying to understand what Catholicism in, is in an entirely kind of instrumental ways that where he can he can um, marry Julia I think is hilarious and he thinks there's um, monkeys in the Vatican and all of that I mean he's, he really has no culture and that's how he's described and I think that you can also see the same trajectory in terms of Charles's own artwork which um, we don't have to go into but you know he starts with a bit of ambivalence about the sort of baroque and the old-fashioned but in the end and, and his paintings for a while, when he goes off to somewhere in South America, I forget where he goes, he tries to take on a more primitive style and he's kind of brought back to task by someone like um, Anthony Blanche, who basically says, you know, this is crap, you, you know, you're losing it by going this. So Charles reflects that sort of anti-modernist. And when he's asked by the young daughter of Cordelia what she th he thinks of modern art, he basically says it's all bosh. So um, that's it. So he essentially is looking at a new elite that's emerging. And it's very interesting. I think this is something we can look at, which is that War himself says in the 1959 introduction, he says, um, you know, he, he may have got this wrong about the modern man because he says that the, the advance of Hooper um, has been held up at several points. You know, he sees that the old English countryside is being revived. Um, and obviously there is a sense, and, and you know, this is obviously going into the, the Cold War, that perhaps he had exaggerated the emergence of this class of people. He, he actually sort of thinks, oh, I might have overdone it a bit. But I think that it, it is actually a very interesting moment that he sees that there is this total loss 
the um, loss of innocence, a kind of moral decline and the sort of shallowness of modernity. So I think there's a lot we can learn from the book. And I think um, it's a great book. And I think we can look at, you know, some of these themes. I think it's worth looking at why this book endures so, what it is that people like about it, what, what do we learn from it. And I'm really glad to have had the opportunity to read it again because I got much more out of it the second time I had a, had a go through it. So thank you very much. You've been listening to Brideshead Revisited, World Wars and the End of the Old Elite, a lecture given by Helen Serles at the Academy Online event in November 2021. We'll return with the final podcast in this series, which will feature Catherine Liu, Professor of Film and Media Studies, University of California, Irvine, and the author of Virtue Hoarders, The Case Against the Professional Managerial Class. If you can make a financial donation to support the work of BOI, then please visit theboi.co.uk forward slash donate. Our plans include the return, in the summer of 2022, of the Academy, as a face-to-face event. Any donation that you can make, large or small, will be much appreciated and will help support the Academy and other projects such as our Debating Matters Schools Championships. In the meantime, do subscribe to Ideas Matter on your favourite podcast feed and we'll catch up soon. Music